Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost. That's July 24th, 2022. And for today's text, we're looking not at a story, really, but the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. This will be Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And then we'll finish it off with one verse from chapter 31, verse 18. So we'll spend a little bit of time walking through the Ten Commandments as God gives them in Exodus chapter 20. And I probably won't stick with the stuff that you find in the small catechism because that's sort of our bread and butter. You can check that out anytime, but I will maybe comment on a on a few other things along the way to um, to explore some different different things you might not usually think about. So we'll begin with Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, where we read, And God spoke all these words, saying... And that's enough for us to stop and take a look at this right here because in Exodus chapter 20, they're not called the Ten Commandments. They're simply called words, not ten and not commandments, simply words. Now, three times in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34 verse 28, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, and in Deuteronomy 10, verse 4, in the English, you'll find the Ten Commandments mentioned, except that in all three of these verses, the word there also isn't commandments, but it's words in Hebrew. So, in the Old Testament, God doesn't speak of the Ten Commandments. He speaks of the Ten Words. In the New Testament, we hear of the commandments, but Jesus never says ten. He simply says commandments. So this may sound like a bit of a crazy question since we've always heard the phrase ten commandments. But what are they? And how many of them are there? There are at least three different opinions on this that I want to share with you. First off, you know how we number them in the Lutheran church. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That numbering is consistent with the Lutheran church and the Catholic church both. And to arrive at Ten Commandments, then, um, the, uh, the Ninth Commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And the Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In Reformed churches, they number them differently. The First Commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the Second Commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So that becomes a second commandment in the Reformed churches, and they take the two commandments about coveting, what we would call the ninth and the tenth, and they make those the tenth commandment put together. So Lutheran and Catholic churches have one numbering for ten commandments, 
Reformed churches have another numbering, and in that way, they add the command not to make any carved or graven images. There's a third option, too, and it's one I really rather like, and it's actually brought to us by by Judaism, by Jewish rabbis. Because remember, here in the Old Testament, they're not called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words, which means not all the words are necessarily commandments. So, in in the... uh, the theology of the Jewish rabbis, they would say that the first word is this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I, I love this for what it teaches in that before God gives these commands to the Israelites, first, he makes them his people. First, he says, I've brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you out of slavery. And now this is how you stay my people by keeping these commandments. This makes clear that the Israelites don't become God's people by keeping the law. They don't become God's people by their works of obedience. Rather, God first saves them and then he gives them his law to follow. Think back to the Garden of Eden and creation. God first creates Adam and Eve. He makes them his people. He forms them to be his people. And then he gives them his command, eat from this tree and not from that tree. He doesn't say, Adam and Eve, I've created you. And now if you keep my law, then you will be my people. He says, By creating you, I've made you my people, and this is how you remain my people, by obeying my command. This fits in very well with with the theology of salvation throughout the Old Testament, that we're not saved by the law. Our sin condemns us. God makes us his people by his grace, by his work. And now as his forgiven people, he says... Here's how you stay, my people. Keep my commandments. And where you fail to keep my commandments, repent, confess confess your sins, and be forgiven. All right, so in, 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 uh, in rabbinical theology and Jewish theology, the first word is a word of deliverance. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've made you my people. Um, and then the commandments follow from there. Whatever the proper numbering of the commandments, we, uh, we know this, that God has made us his people by his grace, and we know that we, sh- we should keep his law, even though God doesn't say, first, you shall have no other gods. He doesn't number them, but his law is still good and right and holy. So God begins to speak all of these words, these 10 words, however they are numbered, by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now that he's declared this word of of deliverance, now he begins with the imperatives, with the commands of the chapter. And the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, as we note in the catechism, 
you can take the Ten Commandments and divide them into two tables. And the first table of the law is the first three commandments because that those commandments are about your relationship with God. So worship no other gods, um, treat God's name appropriately, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are the three commandments about your relationship with God. The last seven commandments, four through ten, those about your those are about your relationship with other people. So on the first table of the law, you have three commandments. On the second table of the law, you have seven commandments. So in, in that respect, numerically, it seems like there's a lot more to the second table. But if you look at Exodus chapter 20, here you have a ton of verses devoted to the first three commands, all right? So verses 3 through 11, or eight verses, are devoted to three commandments. And then there are verses 12 through 17 are devoted to the last seven. In other words, God puts a lot more emphasis on your relationship with him than he does in your relationship with your neighbor when he gives these commandments, and that's most appropriate because your relationship with him is far more important than your relationship with your neighbor. In fact, how you treat your neighbor will flow out of your relationship to God. All right, so the first commandment then is, you shall have no other gods before me. And very briefly in the small catechism, the, the explanation, what does this mean is, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, which means a false god or an idol is anything that you fear, love, or trust in more than you fear the wrath of God or love or trust God. And the Enchiridion, the explanation to the small catechism, is full of examples of that, and I'll let you explore that there. What I want to talk about here is the next couple of verses here, where God goes on to say, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, as I mentioned before, the Reformed churches make this the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a graven image. And so, for instance, a, a, a conservative Reformed Christian would visit Good Shepherd and see our statue of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, with, with the lambs outside of my office and they would say that as a congregation, we are breaking the second commandment because we have a carved or a graven image of Jesus and sheep outside of our church. So in Reformed churches, you don't have artwork like statues and paintings and things because um, in their understanding of the second commandment, uh, those things are forbidden by God to have images of Jesus or, or other, other artwork inside the church. Is that true? Are we breaking the second commandment with a statue of Jesus or with other artwork? Does God forbid all graven images or all carved images when it comes to church things or worship things? And for this, we look to the rest of Scripture. 
And we know that God gives this commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And in five chapters later, he's giving Moses instructions for building the tabernacle and all the furniture that goes inside the tabernacle. And perhaps the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant that sits inside the Holy of Holies. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid called the Mercy Seat. That's God's throne on earth in the Old Testament. And at either end of the Mercy Seat is a carving of cherubim. One cherubim or one cherub statue is at each end of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's significant because there in the most holy place on earth, God commands that there be carved images of cherubim. Likewise, in Numbers 21, the people grumble against God and God sends fiery snakes among them and many die. And they cry out to Moses and Moses appeals to God. And God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole so that whoever looks at the serpent will live. So here, to give life, God commands Moses to make a graven or carved image of a serpent and lift it up for all to see. So clearly, God does not have a problem with graven or carved images completely, he commands that they be made sometimes to point to Christ as part of his work of salvation. So when does God object to having a carved image or a graven image or artwork or statutes, statues rather? That's in verse 5 where he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. All right, so Throughout history, and especially in the Old Testament, people will take rocks or tree stumps and carve faces on them and say, this is our God. When you take a carved image, a statue or whatever, and make it your idol, bow down to it and pray to it, that's what God forbids. In fact, in the case of the bronze serpent, we find in 2 Kings 18... People have started to worship the bronze serpent that Moses made. And so King Hezekiah has it destroyed because people have made it into an idol. All of this is to say this is why we disagree with the Reformed churches that make this the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image is actually commentary on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So we might paraphrase it to say this. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that includes making for yourself a carved image that you would worship instead. All right. So we can have artwork and statues and paintings and the like. As long as we don't start to worship them and and claim them to be our God instead of the God that they point to instead. Now, moving on into further into Exodus chapter 20, why shall you have no other gods before me, asks God. And he answers in verse 5 and following, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. A couple of important things here with this phrase. It's, it's, it's very famous, well-known among Lutherans, because this is how Martin Luther summarizes the Ten Commandments in the small catechism. God says that he is a jealous God. And normally we think of jealousy as being a bad thing. But it's not always the case. I mean, jealousy can refer to sinful envy of what other people have. But jealousy can also mean to be fiercely protective or vigilant of something. And God fiercely protects his name. And God fiercely protects his people. So God is jealous of his holiness. He remains holy. He wants his people to be holy. And so he brings judgment upon those who break his laws, who sin against him. And those that judgment has consequences. So when fathers sin their children to the third and fourth generation might, in fact, suffer consequences from the sin that they have committed. However, he also says he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. So, if a father commits some sin that could have repercussions for generations to come. So, for instance, let's say that that a, a, a father builds a fortune by theft, by, by illegal trading. And so when he is caught and prosecuted, all of that is taken away. His children and their children might suffer poverty for generations. That's a consequence of the father's sin. However, while those consequences happen, God also declares that those who love him don't have to wait for three or four generations to to receive his favor or his love, but God loves those who keep his commandments right away. One more thing, though, both of these are statements of law. God judges those who break his commandments, and God loves those who keep his commandments, but both of those are about your works. If you sin against God, you face judgment. That's law. If you keep his law, he will love you, but that's also law. And you cannot keep God's commandments well enough to earn his love. So while we should work hard to keep God's commandments, we always give thanks that that is not what makes God love us. He loves us because Christ died for us. All right, off to the second commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And again, the small catechism is really very good about talking about this. We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use witchcraft, or use satanic arts in the new catechism, lie or deceive by his name. But call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. It really is remarkable that God reveals who he is to us. 
and tells us to call upon his name for help in time of trouble and being gifted with such a, a great blessing as knowing him and knowing his name, we ought not take that lightly, but make good use of his name and honor him with it. But I'd like to move on to the third commandment and speak a bit about this one, because this one requires a little bit of, of, of careful, I guess, dissection in our current day. God declares in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in the Old Testament, the third commandment kind of had two different commands built into it. One was, remember the Sabbath day by hearing God's word. And the other was, remember the Sabbath day by doing no work. And the Sabbath, of course, was the seventh day of the week, or Saturday. Now, we know it's important to hear God's word on a regular basis. God still commands that. Hebrews 10 verses 24 through 25 tell us not to give up gathering together on a regular basis. However, long ago, the Christians moved that worship from the Sabbath, from Saturday to Sunday. And somewhere along the way, it became okay to work on the Sabbath day or on Saturday, and even after church on Sunday. And you know, for pastors, we work every Sunday as well. So, why do Christians not follow part of the third commandment anymore? And the answer is this. Part of the third commandment was Levitical law, and part of the commandment is moral law. Now, Levitical law was the law enforced by the Levites, or the priests of the Old Testament. And that law applied to Old Testament Israel, or anyone who had a Levite for a priest. You do not have a Levite for a priest. Your high priest is Jesus. Moral law refers to law that, refer, that applies to all people at all times. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 11, God speaks of clean and unclean foods. And in chapter 11, God forbids the eating of, of pork and the eating of shellfish. So, the idea of eating bacon or scallops in the Old Testament it was forbidden. You couldn't do it. That was Levitical law. It no longer applies today, however. Why? Not just because we really like bacon-wrapped scallops and made an exception, 
but because Jesus makes the exception. He declares all food to be clean in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, which means we can eat bacon or scallops or bacon-wrapped scallops. That was Levitical law. In the New Testament, Jesus sets it aside so it no longer applies. Now, when it comes to the Sabbath day, our Lord commands us to hear his word time and time again. I already mentioned Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which calls for us to gather together to encourage one another with the word of God. However, as far as resting on the Sabbath and doing no work, Jesus does not renew that commandment in the New Testament. And so we can labor on the Sabbath as we need to, and we can worship on Saturday or Sunday as fits the right practice of the church because Jesus has set those requirements aside. Actually, he hasn't set them aside. He just hasn't renewed them. And because our high priest hasn't said, you must not work on the Sabbath, we're free to labor on Saturday if we want to. Now, why did God command no work on the Sabbath, but not command it in the New Testament again? Well, he says in Exodus 20, he commanded the Sabbath day because he rested on the Sabbath and wanted his people to remember that he rested and that they should rest to remind them that he would take care of them. And even better, God takes care of his people in the New Testament Because Jesus is our Sabbath. Remember, Jesus dies on the sixth day of the week, the day that God created Adam in the first place. Jesus dies to redeem Adam and all of his descendants on the same day. And where God rested on the seventh day from creating the heavens and the earth, Jesus rests from his work of redemption after dying on the cross before he rises again. The Sabbath day of the Old Testament ultimately pointed to Jesus. And now that we have Jesus, we don't need the Sabbath anymore to remind us of him because we have him himself. Now, all this is to try to explain why we seem to keep parts of the third commandment and ignore other parts. We keep the parts that God still commands today. We gladly hear his word and learn it. We don't keep the parts or don't have to keep the parts that God has made optional. So we can have church on Saturday or Sunday or Wednesday night or whenever. And uh, and, and we can work on Saturday or Sunday if need be. It's a great relief to pastors because, like I said, pastors work every Sunday and do so without breaking the third commandment. From there in this text, then we have the second table of the law. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These are important commandments. There there are some kind of... um, Very relevant things when we talk about the culture wars of today within these. For the sake of time, though, I'm going to let you explore those commandments 
with the explanation of the small catechism in the, in the back part of that book. And I want to move on to the, uh, the final verses of our lesson for today. First, verses 18 through 21 of chapter 20, which read, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. If you remember last week's Sunday school lesson, that's where Peter was listening to Jesus as Jesus taught in the boat. Then Jesus performs a miracle of of this great catch of fish. And and Peter's first response is, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Same thing here. The people hear holy God speak his holy law They know they sin, they know they're unholy, and they say to Moses, please, please don't let God speak to us directly because that'll just kill us. So always be wary of the person who says they look forward to to seeing God face to face because they mean that, that that'd be a great thing to have happen without being cleansed by Jesus' blood. They'll be terrified when it happens. Here in Exodus chapter 20, Moses becomes the mediator between Israel and God. He draws near to God. God gives him his word. Then Moses will speak God's word to the people. And when the people ask for help, it'll be Moses who intercedes before God and asks God to help the people. In this, then, Moses becomes a type of Christ. Christ, who makes God known to us by becoming flesh to speak to us his word, and Christ, who ascended into heaven, still intercedes for us before the throne of his Father in heaven. So, in this chapter, which is about the Ten Commandments, the law of God, it begins with God saying, I've made you my people. And the giving of the Ten Commandments ends with with Moses as a type of Christ who intercedes for us, who is our mediator this day and forevermore. So, so bookending this giving of the law are reminders of the gospel that God makes us his people in Christ. One last verse tacked on to this, this reading from chapter 31, verse 18. And he, the Lord, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. In other words, this isn't man's law that he thinks God would probably approve of. This is God's law carved in stone with God's finger. And so the word of the Lord endures forever. All right, that's a quick look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, and chapter 31, verse 18. 
with a lot of emphasis on why the commandments are numbered differently by different churches and kind of an in-depth look at at commandments 1 and 3 and some important issues there. God grants you every blessing on your further meditations and every good gift if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.